And Father, I pray all of these things in the name of your Son, the one who has saved us. Amen. All right, let's get after it. If you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 15 is where we'll be. Luke chapter 15. Lots to do today. Lots to do. Luke 15. If you weren't with us last week, um, you are a little confused right now why there's a tree growing in our sanctuary behind me. Um, The tree is here for our new series, The Messy Kingdom. Uh, We started it last week. Uh, And we looked in Luke 13 at a couple parables. The series is about the parables that Jesus told about the kingdom. Um, And so we'll continue that today. Here's the plan, the rhythm for us as a church body uh, is to dive into the Gospels for a couple months here. And then when we hit the new year, we're going to hit Acts. Uh, And we'll preach straight through the book of Acts, much like we did Hebrews not too long ago. Um, And so we want to get in the rhythm and get ready for that by really digging in here in the Gospels. Uh, And so we'll start today in Luke 15. Um, and we'll recap just a bit from last week. If you weren't here for last week, though, we're going to be building off of it a lot. Uh, it is online um, for you to listen to if you would like to. Luke 15, we'll pick it up in verse 1. We're going to do the whole chapter here today. Um, this is one of the, in here, there's going to be three stories. One of them is one of the more famous stories um, that has ever been told, maybe. Um, still in our kind of pop culture today, the prodigal son, as it's called. It's kind of a dead metaphor, is what we call it today. We still talk like this. We might say the prodigal has returned, right? Well, that's from Jesus himself. You're putting Jesus here as he tells a story. Um, so we're going to look at it. Luke 15, we'll pick it up in verse 1 here. Verse 1 and 2 are going to hold all the weight um, in these three stories. So we really need to draw in here and see what's happening in verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So in these first two verses, we're given kind of a background and an audience. The background, Jesus is doing certain things, saying certain things, and doing it with certain people. The audience, there's a group of people who are grumbling about it. Now at that time, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and eats with them. And then Jesus is going to rattle off for us three stories, one, and then another, and then another. There's going to be no transition, no real application, and it's not going to close at all. He's going to hit us, one after the other, after the other, three stories. Before we get there, we need to dive into these first two verses here. Now to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week, um, we talked about the idea that Jesus' main message, that the reason he had come and what he was preaching and proclaiming was the kingdom of God arriving on earth. The kingdom of God, God's reign coming to earth. And we mentioned that often we have misread the gospel stories completely. I mean, we've done a 180 degree flip. And so what we have imagined as Westerners far removed from the context of the gospels is that Jesus came to find a way for us to go to heaven. He came to to make a way for us to go to heaven. And what we saw last week, again, we spent about 15 minutes unpacking this, is that it was actually the exact opposite in the Gospels. The kingdom of God has arrived. In our scripture reading, if you paid attention, Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful are the feet of one who comes with the good news, the gospel, saying, your God reigns. The phrase, the kingdom of God, we mentioned again last week, is a lot like the phrase, Sam and Frodo have reached Mount Doom. It has a whole lot of meaning, but you have to know the full story. You have to know why people want them to reach Mount Doom. You have to know what they're expecting to happen when they reach Mount Doom. Jesus comes, Mark 1, 14-15, says, The time is fulfilled. The gospel of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. 
The idea is that God was breaking into human history and setting up a kingdom. He was becoming king. He was taking control. And in that sense, we might say that the Gospels, Jesus was about bringing heaven to earth. Not sucking us out of earth to heaven. You see, heaven's the place where God's reign is accomplished 100%. Jesus comes and says, I'm setting up the kingdom here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven coming to earth. The kingdom of God has arrived. Now, we looked at some Old Testament passages last week to try to get a feel for what this meant to these people, for the hopes and the thoughts and the dreams that they had. Um, So here's what I want to do. If you have your Bible, um, go to Zephaniah chapter 3. Okay? If we want to be comfortable in the Gospels, we need to be comfortable in the Old Testament. I know that makes us nervous. I know our hands are sweating right now. Some of you are like, that's not a book. He's tricking me. Um, Zephaniah is in there. You'll find it. Okay? Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm going to read off for you a few others, and then we'll meet in Zephaniah 3. So you get a head start. Zephaniah 3 is where we're going to be. I want to again show you just a handful of of um, passages we could pick from dozens and dozens and dozens that show us kind of the hope that was ingrained in the Jewish people's minds. They sang songs and they told stories and they said prayers and they did it year after year after year after year. And all of that and more was contained inside a man saying the kingdom of God (coughs) has arrived. And all of that and more was contained inside a man eating with tax collectors and sinners after saying the kingdom has arrived. So Zephaniah 3. I'm going to read for you um, a couple before we get there. But for now, let's notice God's kingdom, um, according to the scriptures, would involve forgiveness, healing, and celebration. When God becomes king on earth, it would be this huge party where his blessings were available to all people, where evil was kicked out, where goodness and justice then reigned over everything. If you remember from last week, we talked about three parts to the kingdom of God. The first is that God would win a victory over the powers of evil. And then he would judge that which does not belong in his creation, and he would vindicate, he would remain, he would raise up that which does belong. And this would involve this epic celebration, this cosmic rejoicing, forgiveness, healing, celebrating. So I'm going to read for you from Micah chapter 4. You might remember Micah chapter 4. Um, we preached through it not too long ago, the book of Micah, one of my favorites. Micah 4, I'm going to pick it up in verse 6 and 7. In that day, this is a common phrase for the day when God fulfills his promises. In that day, declares the Lord... I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them. You see the kingdom. He will become king in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So Micah looks forward to the day. It's in his imagination. It's in his heart. It's in the way he thinks. There's a day coming When God sets up his kingdom, and when he does that, he's going to gather the lame. He's going to take those who have been broken. He's going to take those who have been scattered off. He's going to bring them together and make them his remnant, make them his people, his kingdom people. And that day, I'm going to read for you again from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah, major prophet, lots of prophecies about the kingdom to come. I'm going to read Jeremiah 31. I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, 
O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. He's won a victory over the enemies of his people. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine. I didn't say it. It's in here. And the oil. You know, I didn't notice this. Just aside, this is free. Psalm 23, right? Real famous psalm. Um, if you keep reading toward the end of Psalm 23, it's saying that God invites you into his house and your cup overflows. Overflows with what? So God gives you a cup and starts pouring. And you're like, that's, that's enough, God. But he keeps pouring. And you go, that, I'm good. I can get some more. And he keeps pouring. And pretty soon the wine is all over the ground. You're going to enjoy yourself in the house of the Lord. So they're, they're radiant over the grain, the wine, the oil, all that he's provided for them. Over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden. What an interesting simile. Their life is like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. He says, when God comes and wins the battle, defeats that which oppresses his people, evil itself, sin, death, they'll dance and they'll sing. They'll explode in celebration. They'll enjoy life in a new age. Now you're in Zephaniah. I'm going to meet you there. Zephaniah 3. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 14. Are you there? Yes? No? Okay. Zephaniah 3, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. He's forgiven your sin, and he's beaten that which oppresses you. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He's here. He's arrived. You shall never again fear evil. <clears throat> On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. When God comes and forgives sin, defeats the enemy, those who mourn begin to rejoice, and those who are sad begin to be filled with gladness. When God is in our midst, when He comes, when He arrives, in that day, and Jesus shows up in the Gospels, and he utters these words, the kingdom of God is here. The time is fulfilled. All that you've talked about and hoped for and waited for is here right now. God is becoming king. There's going to be a battle over all that enslaves creation. And God is taking control of that which has gone astray. He's judging. He's getting rid of what does not belong and he's vindicating. So this is Jesus' message. This is the kingdom of God. This is the healing, the forgiveness, the celebration that was expected to happen. Now, Jesus, as he goes around and he preaches and he teaches and he heals, you'll remember from last week, healing was not his primary ministry. 
In fact, he often went away from healing so that he could teach. He was a proclaimer. He was a preacher. And he preached that the kingdom was here in and among him, through him. Well, he went around forgiving people and healing people. And when he did those things, he said, if you see this happen, you know that the kingdom is here. Why? Because that's what, that's what happens when the kingdom arrives. And he also celebrated with people. Here's the problem, though. Jesus celebrated with all the wrong people. He could not have celebrated with anybody more wrong than the people that he did party with. So here's what's happening. Luke 15. The tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear him. How interesting is this? If you were to preach the gospel, the good news of God, do you think that the lowest of low and the most wicked of people would be the ones who follow you and listen to you? This is good news for those who are lame and cast off and oppressed. The tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, eating a meal to us is five-minute hot pocket in the car on the way to work, right? To them, it's a long, drawn-out thing. It's hours and hours. It's prepping all day. It's what you and I might consider a party. We're going to spend money. We're going to celebrate. We're going to laugh, tell stories that border on lies, and just enjoy the food and the company, much like we're about to do after this service. And Jesus came. Now, here was the big problem that the Pharisees and scribes had. It was not that he welcomed these people. It was not even that they found forgiveness. We have been taught, maybe wrongly, to view the Jewish people, particularly in this time, as these really cold-hearted, legalistic people. That's not the case. The Pharisees would have had no problem with these sinners becoming reformed and following God. In fact, that was part of their mission. They wanted all of the Jewish people to turn back, to repent, to follow the Torah, the law of God. What they were upset about is the way it was happening. Because the way it was happening was through Jesus. Not through the temple, not through their systems, not through their ideas, but him coming saying, the king is here. And then for those with eyes to see it, he talks like the king, acts like the king, walks like the king, and smells like the king. They're waiting for the God of the Israelites to come and set up the kingdom. Jesus comes and goes, he's here. You're talking to him. They're upset. Now we've got to unpack this. Tax collectors and sinners. Who are these people that are drawing near to Jesus? We've been taught that tax collectors are people who stole money. So they were supposed to take $40 and they took $60 instead. So you didn't like them. That's true, but it goes way deeper than that. At this time, the Jewish people are under a pagan empire's oppression. The Romans. And the Romans ruled a huge, vast amount of land and territory. The only way you can do that, follow me on this train of thought. The only way you can rule over that much land is to have a massive, massive, massive army. This is before quick strike technology. You can't just fly a helicopter there and settle it down. You have to have a huge army. The only way to fund that army is how? Taxes. A tax collector. These people who were so hated. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. Woo. Okay, Zacchaeus, he was hated. It's not just because he stole money. It's because Zacchaeus was a Jewish man who paid Rome, or in this case, King Herod, for the right to collect taxes to fund the armies that oppressed their people. It was more like what we might consider a national traitor or someone who was actively working against how we thought God was working. 
if you wanted to compare it to somebody, it would not be a thief in our day and age. It might be someone across the sea. The Romans would come in and crucify hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And then you'd see Zacchaeus making a fortune, paying the soldiers who killed your neighbors, who killed your son, who are oppressing the people of God. That's why people hated Zacchaeus. He was a wicked man who sold away the people he belonged to and made a fortune doing it. He was a vile, he should have, he deserved all the hatred that he got. And that's who Jesus went to. He went right past the normal people and said, Zacchaeus, let's go to your house. I want to eat with you. I want to celebrate with you. So the tax clerks are drawn near the sinners. Again, we've been taught over 2,000 years, sinners aren't everybody. We're all sinners. That's true. Um, but in this time, in this day, sinner is a class of people. It's a very specific group of people who have very immoral jobs or who are very, um, have a huge reputation for immorality. They're not people who might struggle with cussing and watching rated R movies. Okay? They would be people who we would all consider to not be the people of God. Right? That is an evil, evil person. There would be people you would not let your children hang around. You would not have come to this scene with your children. As Jesus is teaching, the tax collectors and sinners are there. But Jesus is receiving these people and he's celebrating with them. He's eating with them. He's saying the kingdom belongs to you. And the Pharisees go, "Uh uh-uh. Who is this guy and who does he think he is? There are ways for these people to be forgiven and he's not one of them. And Jesus is going to rattle off three stories in response to this. Here's what Jesus is doing. He was, in a sense, rewriting all the rules about who were actually God's people. And who was the center of this new rule book? He was. Who is God's people? Those who follow and belong to me. Notice in the Gospels, Jesus picks 12 disciples. Very symbolic. God picked 12 tribes. Jesus comes in the gospel saying God is here and does what? Picks 12 men. He's saying this is God's people. Those who follow me. Those who are mine. So let's read the stories, okay? Again, just one after the other after the other. Verse 3. He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And he adds a moral here at the end. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When we're done with these three stories, you'll understand why they wanted to kill Jesus. He just told them, you followed the law to the best of your ability your whole life, and God is more pleased when this tax collector eats with me than you are for everything you've ever done in your life. Jesus just wasn't being nice to people. No one gets killed for being nice. You get killed for challenging authority. You get killed for saying you are the king and your way goes now. He says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now he tells them another story right after it. And it's very similar, the lost coin. So we'll read it together. Or what woman, again, no transition, no real go into likewise. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, drachmas, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, 
Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's a question for you. Think about this. Does the sheep or the coin repent in the story? Let that play around in your mind just a little bit. What's happening in the story is there's something that's lost. There's an owner who goes out of control until he finds it or she finds it. So he starts with a sheep. There's a hundred sheep. There's a shepherd. Shepherding was not a sexy job. I mean, at one point in your life, someone's like, why don't you put the book down and go play with the sheep? Sheep, notoriously, are dumb animals. You can Google it. There's a story not too long ago. 400 sheep fell off of a cliff, just walked off of a cliff um, because their leader did. They don't think. They're not smart animals. One person does it. They see them die, but they're not making decisions for themselves. So they all, 400 of them, just walked off a cliff, which is why you would take maybe not the brightest person and say, go live with the sheep. Make sure they don't fall off a cliff or throw themselves in rushing water. Now, a hundred sheep would have been quite a, a large amount of sheep. He has this flock. One of them goes away. This would be the dumb sheep of the dumb sheep, right? He wanders off. Probably will die on his own. And the shepherd leaves the 99, probably not by themselves. Probably found a little boy or another shepherd to watch them, puts them in a cave. And he goes and he runs down that one lost sheep. He runs, finds it, and grabs it, and puts it on his shoulders. Now, this is debated, but there's some evidence that ancient shepherds in this time period would break the back leg of a sheep that consistently wandered off, which is why you would put it then on your shoulders, because it could not walk. And what you would do is you'd carry it around on your shoulders and hand feed it until its leg healed. This was an act of love. It was love to break its leg so it would not die, kill itself, and then you prove your love to it as you nurse it back to health and say, please learn to listen to my voice. I love you. I'm taking care of you. He finds his sheep. He puts it on his shoulders and brings it all the way back to the fold. When he gets back, he goes, any reason's a good reason to have a party. Let's go. Let's celebrate. And they blow it up. And Jesus says, here's what's happening. You're asking, why am I eating with these people? Well, because they were found. There's a celebration happening. We are celebrating that a lost one was found. Now, I'm going to read from you for Ezekiel 34. You have it here in your worship guide. Um, this was a very well-known text at the time, Ezekiel 34. And it uses this shepherd uh, imagery. And when Jesus tells this story, um, anybody who was well-read in the scriptures would have uh, had this overtone going on in their, their mind, in the back of their head, as he told the story. Um, we'll be in Ezekiel um, chapter 34. Ezekiel 34, I'm going to pick it up in verse 11. He's talking again about that day, that time. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land on rich pasture they shall feed. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, possibly a reference to the broken leg, 
And I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. The Pharisees and the scribes go, what is happening with this man announcing the kingdom and eating with this people? And Jesus goes, here's what's happening. God is here. He's setting up a kingdom, and these are the people he's after. When you see us eating and celebrating, you're seeing the celebration that happens when heaven meets earth. When God sets up his kingdom. And he moves on to another story. It's, it's like a woman. Okay, so there's a couple of different differences between these two stories. You have a man, you have a woman, um, you have an animal, you have an inanimate object. You have probably a wealthier man with a hundred sheep versus a not so wealthy woman. Um, with ten drachmas, a drachma would have been about a day's um, worth of labor for most um, in Palestine. What we think though, the reason she's flipping out about this coin, because if we're honest, she flips. This is an overreaction for one day's wage. She had nine more. She's not concerned about the money. We think that you would get 10 drachmas as part of this wedding um, gift, in a sense. So these probably had sentimental value to her. So you see Jesus kind of casting stories to appeal to different people. Men don't really put as much emotional value on things. Um, but our stuff, I mean, sheep, let's go get the sheep. This woman, though, loses something that was dear to her heart. And she goes crazy searching for it. She moves everything out of the house. She puts the couch and the bed and the entertainment center on the front lawn. She's searching on her hands and knees for days and days and days. And she finds it. And she says, let's celebrate. Let's party. Why? Because the coin was lost and now it's found. And Jesus says, when you see me eating with these people, receiving them, what you're seeing is the kingdom of God arriving. And the lost and the oppressed, the lame and the broken are invited into a party of my victory. A couple things. Now, these stories say, it's the time of extravagant grace, of extravagant searching, of God returning and seeking out which is lost. All three of these parables, in a sense, defend or explain both what is happening with Jesus and who is involved. What's happening when he's eating and celebrating, and then what roles do different people play? If you remember from last week, we said that the kingdom is like a play in search of a cast. What roles will people play? Well, he says, now is the time of extravagant searching and grace. And now is the time of the heavenly celebration. Now is the time where God sets up his kingdom, forgives sins, welcomes the lost, and the whole world rejoices. Now is the day that all have been waiting for. It's here, and here's what he says to the Pharisees. You're missing it. It came, and you have missed it, and are pouting and grumbling. And if you don't fix your attitude and fix your vision on this, you're going to miss out on what you've been waiting for. And just in case they don't get the picture in these first two stories, he tells them another story. It's a little bit longer. And it's a little bit more clear. So let's read it. It's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. I think we'll see, uh, many have pointed out recently, it might better be called the, the story of the prodigal father. The real surprising figure in the story is the father. The sons act like sons act. The father, though, at every turn, does something that you would not expect. He's reckless. He's surprising. And he said, there was a man who had two sons father and two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Okay. At this time, 
Um, you had a patriarchal uh, society with a family, a father, head figure, okay? If you wanted an inheritance, you had to wait until the father died. There was one clause where the father could give you the gift before he died, but it was pretty unheard of. And so um, many points out, when the son comes to the father and says, give me the inheritance, it would be akin to him saying, die. I wish you were dead. I want to live like you were dead. I want your stuff and I want to be done with you. Now here's what fathers are known to do at this time. You'd beat the young son and you'd kick them out of your family. This is an honor-shame culture. The father does not get shamed by the son in front of his family and his village. The young son is acting like young, stupid people sometimes do. The father is the one who's really surprising. What does he do? He divides his property between them. He says, here you go. What would have happened is the older brother would have gotten two shares. So he would have gotten about 67%, two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger brother would get about one-third. So he divides it, and here's what happens. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. He leaves town, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he moves away and then wastes it with booze and prostitutes. That's a paraphrase. Um, we'll see kind of where it gets in here, okay? Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country. So now this young man, following his dream, his passion, his desires, is at a very low place. He's lost all of his money, and now he's working for a foreigner, for a pagan, for a Gentile. Just like the Jewish people under the Roman oppression. Now he's found himself at a very low place, and it's going to only get lower. He began to be in need. He went out and hired himself to one of the citizens who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. For a Jewish person, it gets no lower. There's no lower, more dirty, unclean, unacceptable task than feeding the pigs for a Gentile owner. It's hard to imagine it getting much lower. The people hearing this story would have naturally followed into this reaction. The young son is just as stupid as could be. The father should have beat him and not given him the money. Look at what he did. So he goes, and he was longing, verse 16, to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He doesn't eat what the pigs are eating, most likely because he has this Jewish background ingrained in him. He can't can't find it with himself to do it. But verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. Here we have repentance. Here we have a change of mind. And he wants to go back. Now, I love it because he's going to rehearse his apology speech. You got to love a guy who's going to rehearse his apology. Um, I've done it before in my life, okay? I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he understands he's going back to a village and a family unit where he has shamed all of them. And he's going to go back and beg to be a slave. Again, this is not maybe too unusual. He's a stupid kid. He takes the money. He squanders it. Now he wants to come back and see if he can get any help. Here's what's unusual. Look what the father does. He rose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran. 
saw him and felt compassion and ran. He ran. He picked up his robe and ran. You would not have done this even for good things if you're an elderly man in Palestine. This is a sign of weakness. This is a sign of um, youth and stupidity and immaturity. But he sees his son and he runs. Think through. Again, um, we think of running as athletic. Um, Oh, that's great. He can run. He probably ran really fast. Um, But things have changed so much in 2,000 years. Way back when, it was a good thing to be overweight. It meant you didn't have to work. It meant you had a lot of food. Way back when, it was a good thing to be pale as uh, something pale, right? It was a good thing to be really, really, really pale because it meant that you didn't have to work out in the sun like a slave. Now, 2,000 years later, we want to be skinny and dark. Like me. Back then, things had changed. Men don't run. Again, not even for good things. His son comes back, who in front of everybody said, go die, and left. And he runs like a fool. How reckless. How foolish. He runs and meets him. He embraces him and kisses him. And the son said to the father, he's already rehearsed this. He's got this down, okay? Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said... The father does not even let him finish the speech. He says, we can talk about this later. Right now we need to do something. So he calls the servants. He says, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. We're going to eat. We're going to celebrate. For my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. And Jesus says, this is what's happening when you see me eating with these people. The reckless, prodigal love of God has entered into creation as finding all that is lost, all that is broken, all that is dead, and bringing it to himself. But there's more to the story, and this is going to be directly pointed at the Pharisees. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. It's an epic party when you hear dancing, right? I've been a part of a few dances in my life. I don't think people could hear us dancing. But he's coming in from the field and going, Whoa, what is happening over there? He comes in and he hears it. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He, I think he has a, a feeling it's not going to be good. He doesn't go talk to the father. He doesn't go into the house. He says, What, what is happening here? I wasn't told about a party. What What happened? He called one of the servants, asked what these things meant, and he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf. He's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. He was, I mean, this set him off. He felt underappreciated, undervalued. He had been working here the entire time. And he says, I'm not going in. Now, again, understandable. This is maybe not so prodigal, not so reckless, not so unheard of. Here's what's unheard of. The father, once again, with this crazy amount of patience, I mean, just insane. He doesn't go out and go, I swear, if you don't get in that house and put a smile on your face, I will beat you until you are blue. He comes out and entreats him. He comes out and persuades him. He comes out and convinces him of what's happening. And the son answered the father and said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. The father's thinking, So what? You were supposed to do that, and it was your joy to do that. I provided for you. 
Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. This is so foolish because the young goats that the father has were his, legally. He's already divided the property up. They belong to the older brother. He says, you never threw a party for me. But when the son of yours came, notice it's not his brother anymore. When the son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Here's the older brother. Here's what he's saying. You fool and you awful father. I've been here the entire time. And you're going to let the son run all over you in front of everybody. You're a disgrace. And you don't love me at all. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It's yours. You, you've owned it all. I've given it to you out of my love for both of you. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother, he's not content to call him his son. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the story goes on. The next scene we have, chapter 16, he's in a different place with just his disciples. There's no close to the story. We don't know what happened. Did the older brother go in? We don't know how the Pharisees responded to these stories. But Jesus tells a story about celebration happening. A father who's entreating the older brother. And catch this. Is that not what Jesus is doing right then? Entreating the older brother. That's exactly what he is doing. He's convincing the older brother. Come into the party. Come into the celebration. Here was the problem with the older guy. He said, you've never thrown a party for me. The father's going... It's right there. You're the one not going into the party. Walk into it. We've got the calves. We've got the goats. We've got the wine. Don't sit out here and go, you know you're throwing a party for me. The party's right there. But you're going to pout and grumble and you're going to miss out on it. As Jesus looks at the Pharisees, that's his message. It's here. It's happening. These people are in. But you're going to complain? You've waited all this time and looked so hard for this day and you're going to miss out on it because you didn't like what happened. You're invited, but you're instead going to grumble on the outside. And you've got to imagine at this point, some of these guys said, well, kill this guy. His days are numbered. No one talks like that. So the prodigal father, now again, is the time of forgiveness and mercy. Now is the celebration. Now is the party of the heavens. And all have the choice of joining or remaining on the outside. Both the older son and the younger son. We might say that the battle lines in a sense have been drawn. Something has happened and again, the kingdom is a play. It has roles that need to be cast. The kingdom is here. The party has arrived. All are invited to walk in. We mentioned last week, Christianity is something that happened. It's a historical event, first and foremost. Here's where we've confused things. Um, And we'll see this in Acts. Because in Acts 15, there's a direct parallel to Luke 15. I mean, chapter parallel. It's really interesting. We'll see that when we get into Acts. In Acts 15, the same thing happens. But this time, it's between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians are a little hesitant to allow the Gentile Christians to come in. Here it's with the Pharisees and the tax collectors. The kingdom is here. He says it's dawning. 
It's arrived. Here's where we've mistaken things. We typically present the gospel, which is really an announcement of a victory. Jesus would have been a teenager when Tiberius Caesar would have became emperor and would have sent out heralds into towns near Jesus' town saying, Good news, the gospel of Tiberius Caesar. He has become emperor. He's bringing peace to all of the land. The gospel is an announcement. But we, what we have done is we have made the gospel a, something where we persuade people, where we feel like we have to work really, really hard to convince people that they want in. So we tell them, this will be, following Jesus will fulfill all of your deepest desires. It will make you feel, it will fill up those holes that you have that have never been filled. It will comfort you, it will fix all of your problems and things like that. And so what happens, a lot like in a marriage, where if you go into it thinking that person will fulfill you, when they don't fulfill you, what do you do? You back out of it. You slow down. The gospel is not that there's this private religious experience that you might like to try, that you might enjoy, if what you've been doing hasn't worked very well for you. The gospel is this. Something happened 2,000 years ago. The world is never the same, has not been the same, and you are on one or two sides of the fence. There's a party happening right now. There's a party happening. Heaven is coming to earth, and you can either go in to the house and celebrate, or you can stay on the outside. It's not a question of, is it going to happen, or will you experience it? You will experience it. You'll either get in, or you'll stay out. Karl Barth, this real famous theologian, was once asked, I love this, I read it this week, he was once asked, when did you become saved? And here's his answer, ready? Follow me on this. When did you become saved? Here's what he said. Roughly 33 AD. About 2,000 years ago, the king showed up, he won the battle, and the party started. That's when I was saved. Now the question of when I realized it, maybe a little bit later, Something happened that changed everything. And I found myself invited to come in and feast, to sing and to dance, to find God's blessings. Who are the kingdom people? Who are on the guest list of this party? It's those who, as in Mark 1, repent and believe in the good news. It's those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus. Him and Him alone. We mentioned last week repentance is a political term. We have records of Josephus from 6070 AD using the word repentance in the same way that a political leader would use the word repentance. Follow my ideas for how justice will be served. Follow my ideas for how we'll fix the problems of the world. Follow my ideas for how we'll judge and vindicate. Repent and believe in me. Commit to me. Put your allegiance in me. If you unpack this, Paul We'll use words like justification by faith. Justification is all about who's in. Who gets to sit at the table? He says it's not those who are Gentiles or Jewish. It's not those who've had a clean past or a messy past. It's those who what? Have said, I follow the king. Wherever he takes me, to my death, I follow him. I have pledged my allegiance to him and him alone. You see, Christianity is the belief... Jesus' ministry was the climax of all of history. From Genesis 3, when sin and death entered into the world, when things became broken and spiraled out of control, there's a plan hatched to a man of Abraham to redeem all of it through Israel. Those who follow Jesus say, It happened. It happened. Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. On the cross, the battle against sin and death was accomplished. He won. 
and nothing has ever been the same. A time of victory and renewal, the defeat of all evil. And here's the question we'll close with today. Next week, we'll look at what it means to be a kingdom person. What kind of lives do kingdom people live? Here's the question that went out then as he told those stories and goes out now. Will you miss out on the party? Or will you come to the table? For those at the table, when were you saved? Approximately 2,000 years ago. When the king of Israel showed up and started to bring heaven to earth. And there's a party happening today all around the world with people receiving the blessings of the Spirit, of a renewed heart, all the things that we'll look at next week. The question is not, would we like to try it? Would it work well for us? Would it fit in with our plans and our desires? The question is, are we going to enter into the house and enjoy? Or are we going to stand outside and grumble and complain? Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray this morning.